for tonight, Don Kay from Los Angeles, California. Good evening. My name is Don, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is September 25th, 1999, and my sponsor's name is Jim S. Before I go any further, I would like to thank the committee members for getting me up here, Dave, and for the initial call uh, where I was extremely excited. Um, thank you again for having me. I am so honored to be here. Most important, I want to welcome the newcomers. Maybe those who didn't identify yet or have the opportunity yet. This is all for you. And I want to remind you, no matter what anybody tells you, newcomers, there's only 12 steps, not 13. <laughs> Unlike some people in here, I don't prey on the newcomers. You feel free to tell those folks to go look for a hostage somewhere else. Anyway, again, my name is Don Kay. I am actually from Orange County and uh, Tustin, to be exact. And again, I am grateful to be here. I'd like to thank my friends from Orange County for coming up with me. And uh, let me get started. I'll give you some background on my family. Uh, born and raised in Anaheim. Long before anybody called it Anna Crime, which is what they call it now, I uh, single parent household. It was my mom, my sister who was 10 years older, and my brother who was 15 months older. Uh, unfortunately, I learned early on about fear in my home. Not only was I that child that was absolutely obsessed with what I think you think of me beyond the normal sphere of things. I had a sister who didn't like to babysit very much. Again, she was 10 years older than I. And she started out with my brother and I. She would take, uh, take us by the hair and slam our skulls together. And when that didn't get the needed response from her, she eventually graduated up to taking razor blades and running those across my leg until I bled and screamed as much as I guess she needed for me to. So I was afraid to be at home when mom left because I knew what might happen. I was this little tiny kid. My sister was, she did the best she knew how, and I'll tell you more about that in a while. But she was a big girl, and I was terrified of her. Every other weekend, I got to go see my father. My father was born and raised in Swinkley, Pennsylvania. He was raised by my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was the grand dragon of the Swinkley, Pennsylvania KKK. You can imagine, <laughs> that's who taught my father how to be a father. So I'm full of fear at my dad's house. I'm full of fear at my mom's house. But I will tell you what. And I can verbalize this now, but I couldn't then. I am such an early budding codependent. 
that I knew that all of the abuse I received was my fault. Even back then, it was all about me. And I knew it was because of something I was doing wrong. And because if I was only a better boy, it wouldn't happen. I tried and I tried and I tried and I wanted to be quote unquote normal. And there I was completely growing up inside of an assumption because it was what I think you think of me. I never ask you what you think of me because I don't want the answer. So I'm just going on autopilot, completely full of fear. I, uh, you know, it was, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. Got any of my people out there in the audience from the 60s and 70s? Can I hear it? There we go. Remember the original Charlie's Angels, right? I know, look at the millennials. Really? Oh my God, there was an original. I can remember watching the original Charlie's Angels and talking about it the next day and walking to school with my school buddies and I knew something was really, really wrong with me because I didn't want to do any of the angels. I wanted to do their hair and makeup. Why was it that Kate Jackson and Christy McNichol were my idols as a child? Because they were butch, right? Something I could never be. So I was this effeminate little skinny kid I was getting bullied. I got called faggot. I got, I'm preaching to the choir. I wanted to be normal. I kind of knew what was up with me. I knew that my favorite color was shiny. I knew that. <laughs> I know that my first sprained ankle wasn't from the Pop Warner field. My sprained ankle was because my mom pulled in the driveway and I had on a pair of her spectator pumps. And I'm running across the living room in that old hideous high-low shag, right? Catch that heel. Girl down. Girl down. <laughs> but early on, I got to tell you, something else I learned how to do, and I wasn't able to verbalize it back then, but now I can. I learned how to be a good victim. And I loved being a victim. Because being a victim and being picked on and being beaten and abused, in my head meant I wasn't responsible for any of my choices. Because don't you know how rough my life is? And I carried that on way into my later years. I loved being a victim. And so I moved through life, tried to do all the normal things. I played five years of Pop Warner, or high school football actually too. I played six years Little League. I was much happier not on the field. I was much happier in the dugout reading my Nancy Drew mysteries, you know, <laughs> while everybody else was out playing. But I wanted to be what I thought you needed me to be. I was brought up in a home that taught me what to think, not how to think. On the mantle in my home, and this isn't anything to rile anybody up, but there were pictures of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and Bill O'Reilly. So that's the kind of home I grew up in. And I was told what I would think and what my opinions were. I was desperate for your approval, and I didn't even know what you needed me to be. 
I was too afraid to ask. I was a fear-based little boy. So as I got older, I got tired of getting made fun of. I learned how to make fun of other people. I decided I wanted to become funny verbally. And what I did with that is I turned on my group of nerdy little friends. I turned and I would make fun of them because everybody would laugh. And for one second, it felt to me like relief. You were looking at them, the attention was off of me, and I could finally exhale. I learned how to victimize others because that's absolutely what I was taught. I'm not proud of that, but it is part of my story. So as I got older, I uh, again did all the normal boy things. I dated women, dated women well up until I was 23. Had some wonderful relationships, I absolutely did. I uh, decided uh, while playing high school football that I would go get my first big boy job. So I went for my very first audition for the Fantasy on Parade at Disneyland. Now, if anybody here knows anything about the entertainment division at Disneyland, there's one word, um, gay, very. So gay. So of course, we pull up on the day of the audition. I'm 16, I'm wearing my track jacket, right? Because don't you, don't you know that's what I think you need to see that day? And we take my mom's orange pinto, because we were white trash, and happy about it. She sat in that parking lot and waited for me. I could consciously remember walking up to the line at the audition. And I was all proud, and all I can think is I just want to fit in. But there, at the audition, are all of these real dancers, one of which I never was. But I can remember they had their sweaters tied around their waist, and they didn't look at all like me. And I just took off my little track windbreaker because I'm so terrified to have to be myself. And I tied my track windbreaker around my waist. So I got my first part at Disneyland that Christmas as a toy soldier. I uh, went on to do seven different parades for Disney. Um, there's actually somebody here in the audience tonight who was in that very Merry Christmas parade with me in 1980. So James, I want to give you a shout out. <laughs> After I did seven parades for Disneyland, and that was of course mostly weekend work or seasonal, then to go back to school and be who I thought you needed me to be, I auditioned and made it into the character department at Disneyland. Two-day audition, I'll tell you what. I was so grateful, really, 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 to get to be Goofy, Tigger, Captain Hook, and Winnie the Pooh in the park at Disneyland. More importantly, because I thought you would approve. And ultimately, because I got to wear a costume and I didn't have to be myself. Right? I loved working there. I did. And that's where I learned how to drink. But I will tell you now, I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of war stories. I'm in a room full of people who could tell you war stories. I drank a lot. And it started at the Tragic Kingdom. <laughs> 
So, unfortunately, while I was in the character department, we found that during lunches when you're out of costume, yep, uh, sorry millennials, there wasn't always California Adventure across that parking lot. Sometimes we parked out there and we could run across the street when we got a break for lunch, do shots at the Acapulco's restaurant, and come back in the park and get in the costume. So there I am in the goofy costume in the park after like five or six shots of tequila. Picture that. <laughs> All over the place, falling down, just trying to get into character, right? It got even worse because there were some days when Tigger accidentally did some cocaine. And on those days, Tigger was quite bouncy. Imagine that, me inside that costume, like, you know. Anyway, um, Disney uh, proceeded to not be very happy with the fact that I created, uh, with one of my coworkers in the park, in costume, a 40-person food fight when we were drunk. Uh, no, it wasn't 40 people. It was 100 people, 100 park guests involved. We got 40 formal complaints. And Walt Disney said, you can no longer work here. So I made the next reasonable choice that you would make to the Orange County Probation Department. 23 years old. That's me. I know there's a couple of you on probation right now, and I know you just clenched. Don't worry. I'm not a PO. But I did work for Orange County Probation Department. I was a 23, just got the job. At the same time, 23 years old, sitting at the counter with my mom one day, drinking a box of wine because we're trashy. I say, Mom, I think I'm gay. And my mom, because she's extremely unhappy at this news, vomits on the front of my shirt and kicks me out of the house and says, you're not my son, get out. And again, I get to be the victim. So, it was on. I would show you what a good victim was. I actually lasted at the Orange County Probation Department for six years. Unfortunately, during my last year at the Orange County Probation Department, um, or I should say, during my first year, my last girlfriend and I broke up. I had uh, given her like a Cracker Jack kind of ring, right? And... Uh, Unfortunately, she had a brother. And the door wasn't locked, and she walked in. So that's how that ended. I will tell you that I later got to make a living amends, and I'm quite grateful for that, too. But, so no more women. It's on with the boys. And in 1994, I resigned from the Orange County Probation Department. Mind you, probably six months before I resigned, I was out at a bar one night. I had gained a whole bunch of weight since high school. I ran into somebody I would not talk to in high school because he was obviously gay, and I was afraid you would know I was if I spoke to him. So I walk in, and he says, how you doing, Letterman? Because I had a Letterman's jacket back in the day. And he said, uh, boy, you put on some weight in a gay bar. Another homo says this to me. I'm like, girl. Um, 
And he says, I've got something for you. I can help you lose some of that weight. And what do you think happened? Right immediately, I signed up for the Jenny Crank program. I went on that Jenny Crank diet, and it was on. I did not eat for the next five years. I uh, resigned in 94, like I said, and I began having really, really severe consequences from my drinking and using. I uh, had my first arrest in 1997. I, at this point, uh, will just tell you here. Five years every day I drank and used. The last two years, every single day, was a half gallon of vodka, three grams of methamphetamine, and three sleeping pills. And I took those sleeping pills because I didn't stay up all night because I was normal. That's what I convinced myself of. And Lord knows in this room, you guys understand me when I say we believe our lies. So I had become an absolute mess. I ended up losing four apartments full of, full of my furniture. I ended up losing four cars. No, wait. Let me rephrase that. I gave that stuff away. I didn't lose anything. I chose to have a full bottle of vodka and a full sack of dope more than I chose to have any kind of adult responsibility. But you know at the time, it was everybody else's fault. It was their fault because I was beaten and abused. It was my dad's fault because, say, when I was seven years old, he hit me so hard in a store parking lot, and this is true, he knocked me six feet and he knocked two teeth out and he broke two ribs. That was because he thought I was going to run in front of a car. But that's what you do, I guess, when you're raised as a fear-based man in the KKK. So there I was, little Mr. Victim, ended up living in the backyard of a house, in a tent, because they wouldn't allow me inside, because they had kids. So, it's 1997, I get my first arrest for possession. I do the drug diversion program. I do not want to get sober. I lie on my court card. Some of you have done it too, right? Someone just clapped, what the hell, right? <laughs> I'm still a mess in my life. I'm under such influence of substances and my fantasy world and wanting the world, wanting the entire world to see me like this. How you doing, bro? Yeah, man. Get a piece of ass, yeah. But on the inside, I was all like, five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> right? That was who I was. My tormented little song leader. So, I'm going on, it's 1999, I get my final arrest. By this point, I've been in the county actually five times total. Imagine me in the county jail. I mean, I'm kind of a big guy, but my inner homo, which I think is inner, by the way, nobody ever believed it was inner anyway, but, <laughs> you know, news to me. There they are handing out the jumpsuits in Orange County Jail. And all I can see is that they're this mustard color, and I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, I want to tell them, mustard kind of washes me out. Do you have anything in a teal for my eyes? Right? Could I bedazzle this before I go into general population? But I was such a mess. I didn't know who I was. I didn't like who I was. And I was literally trying to kill myself on a daily basis. 
I ended up doing things for money that I'm not proud of. I can tell you all about some alleys behind the adult bookstores and what 20 bucks will get you. I'm not proud of that. It is what it is. However, things like that, behaviors like that, are absolutely the sort of thing that I got to build, eventually, my foundation for a new life on. In 1999, I had my final, final arrest. And believe it or not, I got placed on probation at the very same probation department I used to work at with a probation officer who I had trained five years before. <laughs> right? So I pled into the drug court program, and I did the drug court program. I got some therapy, a lot of therapy, much-needed therapy, and I got this other thing that that drug court program told me about, these meetings with you folks. It turned out that those meetings, as we know, would be the first thing that saves my life. I graduated from drug court in 2000, February 21st, 2001. A couple months later, I'm living in a sober living home in Santa Ana in total gangland. <laughs> and there's me and my happy ass, like skipping out to the like white produce truck, like, do you have any chimichangas? And they're like, oh, pinchy maricón. But um, it wasn't going over. So, I get a phone call at that sober living home, and now is where the healing starts for me. They say, this is nurse so-and-so from St. Jude Hospital. Your mother's here, who I haven't spoken to in five years. She's had a stroke, and she wants to see you, but she's unable to speak. And I say, thank you, and I hang up, and I call my sponsor, because you told me to get a sponsor and to work the steps right? So I was doing those things, and I had this sponsor, and I called that sponsor, and I wanted to play victim because I'm really good at it. And I said, can you believe? Look, oh, now she's had a stroke, and now she wants to see me, and she kicked me out of the house. And my sponsor did the best thing he could have done at that time. He said, you need to shut your mouth, you need to get on a bus, and you need to get to that hospital and see your mother. And I followed my sponsor's direction because that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me to do. And I walk in that hospital room, and half of my mom's body is working. Half of it's not. But there's my mom. I haven't seen her in five years. She's had a stroke. And I can remember that very clearly in my head. And she writes on her dry erase board with her left hand, because the right wasn't working anymore. And she wrote, honey, can you move in with me and help me? So I immediately, you know, and like many people in this room, I have the light side, the recovery side of my brain where things are a little bit clearer. I still have that dark side, right? I still have that dark side where the crazy stuff comes up and the anger and the resentment that I choose to hang on to because it allows me to play victim. And that dark side of my brain is like, Mom, I'll be right back. And I go in the hallway and I call my sponsor again. And I say, can you believe this? She wants me to move in with her and help her? And I'm thinking, sorry about your stroke, lady. And my sponsor said, once again, shut your mouth, pack your stuff. I'll be there this Sunday. You're moving in with your mom. And I follow my sponsor's direction because even though it makes me uncomfortable and I don't understand it, it has, up until this very day, saved my life. 
And my sponsor picks me up and I get to move in with my mom. I get to wipe my mom and change her diaper. I get to bathe my mom. I get to make every meal for her until she gets some rehab and reuse of her arms. She never walked again. But I get the opportunity, as my sponsor explained to me, to be the son, not only that my mother needed in that moment, but to be the son that I needed to be because someday she's not going to be around anymore. I also got the gift to keep my mouth shut long enough to listen to my mom's story and find out that the rest of the world has made mistakes and has feelings and opinions on everything, too. Not everything's all about me and my victimhood. I will tell you that in working the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, my victimhood was being chipped away at. And the opportunity to be of service, as we are taught, was doing that very work. I'm so grateful for that process and the many times I've gotten to walk through that very same process. I uh, remember we're from Anaheim. My mom is all about California Angels, right? Anybody else an Angels fan in here? Anybody? Come on now. Come on. Don't get all scared. Don't, don't get beat up by the Giants fan. So, come on. Anyway, I'm on the mic right now. So, my mom loves California Angels. She knows who's been traded. She knows their on-base average. My mom knows so much about the Angels. We grew up right down the street from the stadium, right? I learned to drive a car in that parking lot. I learned to do other things in that parking lot. I learned to drink in that parking lot. And uh, I get to surprise my mom with tickets for the Angel Stadium Mother's Day celebration for what actually turned out to be her last Mother's Day alive. There's my mom, so excited, all about the angels. And there's me talking smack in the background going, Mom, you know so much about the angels you're, and sports. You're kind of a lesbian. And she doesn't like that. And I'm like, what are you going to do, chase me? But, you know, poor thing. I'm still a bitch. But I wake up at 6 o'clock on the morning, Mother's Day. We're going to go to that game later, the Mother's Day celebration. They celebrate moms, and I'm so excited. But all I got to do at 6 a.m. is go pee. So I walk out, you know, and there sitting at the kitchen counter is one of the new beautiful memories I have in my emotional scrapbook. Because I have up here pictures from the past that aren't nearly as beautiful that are in my emotional scrapbook. But recovery and the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous have allowed me to collect a number of beautiful new memories in my emotional scrapbook. And one of them is my mom sitting at that counter with her angel's hat on, her angel's jacket on, the rally monkey, and her thunder sticks. Right? With her hands folded, and she leans forward and says, Honey, could we please go early to batting practice? I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that beautiful, beautiful moment. We went to the game that day. Angels did not win. Oakland won. But... We got the gift. I cruised my mom out by the center field fountain. We threw pennies in the fountain. The fountain was a big deal to my mom. Throw a penny and you always get good luck, et cetera, et cetera. Two months after that game, my mom moved up to Montana to be near my brother Scott. Because her health was failing and Scott said, I want to spend some time with mom. 
Two months after that, I get a phone call. And Scott says, Donnie, you've got to get here. And my brother Scott's crying. And he doesn't care that I don't have any money and I can't get there. He's just a mess. And he says, Mom's kidneys have shut down and she's got three or four days. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's the first time in my recovery that I really felt like drinking or using because I didn't know how to process this kind of feeling. That's my mom. I call my sponsor because you taught me to call my sponsor. You, my tribe. And he says, get to my house. And we go to the Friday night meeting on PCH in Laguna Beach. And I get up to the podium because he tells me, if you don't share what's on your heart, tonight you might go drink and use. And I get up to that podium and I share what's on my heart. And I cry. I cry because I have no money. I can't get to Montana and my mom's going to die. And I sit down after I share, and when that meeting was over, a group of alcoholics approach me in the back of the room. And they say, we took up a collection, and we want you to be with your mom. And I go home with a handful of money. And by the end of that night, I have a flight arranged for the next morning. And the next morning, my AA tribe, they show up at my door a carload of my people. In fact, one of those people is here tonight. And Kelly, I love you. I love you. And she took me to Orange County Airport. And I got to get to Montana. My mom was still alive. And she said, honey, I thought you couldn't. And I said, AA sent me, mom. She said, all right, have you talked to your brother? And I said, Mom, I know what's going on. That's why I'm here. And she said, do you have your sobriety coin on you? And I said, I do. It's in my right pocket. And she, at this point, is covered by all these wires and her robe. And she says, honey, can you put that coin, your silver coin, in my robe pocket? And I'm like, Mom, that's kind of weird. <laughs> she says, no, it's not, son. She said, that coin gave me my son back. And that coin taught me how to be a mom. Your ANA meetings, ANA, God love her. <laughs> and then she said, and don't tell your brother, because they'll think I'm crazy. She said, but I want to take it up and show your grandma up in heaven. She said, I think she'll be proud of you, too. That's a gift I got that you gave me. It's a gift I got from my higher power and the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and my sponsor and my tribe who did for me what I couldn't do for myself at that time. I got to be there with my mom. I got to hold her hand. I got to hear those words from my mom. She died a few days later, and I will tell you, that my father, who had driven up with my stepmother, because they had all decided to be adults and grow up over the years, they were also there. But he sat me down outside the hospital the day after my mom died. And he said, son, I think it's time we talk about who your birth father really is. That's some wonderful timing, Dad. <laughs> but I will tell you this. I'll get to that story, too. 
The next year on Mother's Day, as it approached, my AA family called me, and you said to me, you said, we don't want you to be alone on Mother's Day this year. We want to honor you, and we want to honor your mom. And we got tickets, and we're going back to Angel Stadium for the Mother's Day celebration. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous did for me. And you picked me up, and we went to that outfield fountain before that game started. My mom and I had thrown pennies in the year before, and I got to dump a little tiny box full of my mom's ashes in that fountain. Because my thought is, when that water shoots up and one of the angels gets a home run, my angel's right there in the outfield. That's exactly how it should be, and that's where my mom belongs. Immediately after that, my sponsor says, what about your sister? Mind you, at this point, my sister is locked up in a gyro psych unit, multiple sclerosis, and schizoaffective disorder. And I say, I hate her. I don't care. There was too much abuse. Blah, blah, blah. And he says, here's what you're going to do. That man picked me up two weeks later. He took me to the family law building. We filled out paperwork. I stood up in front of a judge, and against my better decision, I took legal conservatorship over my sister. And now, in hindsight, it's one more, I got to. I got to be my sister's legal conservator. And he said, I'm going to teach you to get rid of all of that anger and all of that pettiness. And he said, here's what you do every week. And I did it for 15 years. I went, and I had to follow this because I hated her. I walk in. She's in a wheelchair. When she could speak, she'd hold her skinny little arms up, and she'd say, Donnie, my brother. And she'd reach in her purse, and she'd pull out a brush. And she'd say, Donnie, would you please brush my hair like Mama used to do? And my sponsor said, you do it. And I brushed my sister's hair for, I think it was about 20 minutes. Same thing occurred every single time I went. Same pattern. And after I brushed her hair and she lifted her head up and she said, and I'd say, even when she couldn't speak anymore, sis, you hungry now? She'd nod her head. I got to wheel that girl up to a counter. And I got to hand feed and play submarine with the little fork with my sister who had cut me with razor blades years and years and years ago. By that point, I had let go of all of that. And every one of my times with my sister was nothing but love. I am so grateful for my sponsor. I will tell you, my father. Uh, some years ago, there was Proposition 8 in Orange County where they didn't want to allow gay marriage to uh, pass. My dad calls me up in his best KKK voice, Donnie, you know how he does, right? Talks like a Jerry Springer audience member. <laughs> Donnie, you know. He says, you got this thing out there in Orange County where they want to let you gays get married. You gays. And my stomach goes to butterflies because I become that seven-year-old boy. And I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. Okay, just breathe, breathe, breathe. And he says, i got to tell you something, son, if I still lived in California. He said, I want you to know I'd vote for you to be able to get married. And I said, what? And he said, son, I've watched you. At the time, I had nine years. He said, I've watched you and the man you've become in the last nine years. 
He said, and I myself have fallen in love with a gay man in my life, and that's you. He said, why shouldn't you have the right? I'll never understand it, son, but if you want to get married, I'm all for it. A man from the KKK. And I got to hear that because I got to do the work necessary to work through my anger and my shame and my bitterness and trying to blame the whole world when nobody had victimized me worse than I ever had. I victimized myself worse than anybody had. I will say, last May, last May, I got a call from my brother. My dad's 93. He says, Donnie, you got to get there. My dad's in hospice. I get out to Arizona, and I get to stand there, and I get to hold that man. 93 years old, I get to cradle him. And I get to tell that man I love him. And I don't notice it, but when the hospice worker walks us out of that house, she says, how many kids does your, does your dad have? And I say, five. And she goes, do you notice there's only one on the wall? One picture. My picture. And that wasn't about winning or being better. I just didn't realize what the work of Alcoholics Anonymous would give me. My dad died, and five months later, I walked into the hospice in Long Beach, and I met a new nurse where my sister was, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm the brother. I haven't met you yet. You must be new. And he didn't know that I didn't know, and he said, I'm just trying to establish the time of death. And I said, she died, and he said, yes. I make a phone call, and I get the gift of sitting on that bed with my sister. I get that damn sheet off of her head. And this is a hospice hospital, so I just pull the curtain. I don't even care. And I ask the lady next to me for a brush. And she gives me one. And I sit on my sister's bed, and I get to brush her hair one last time. I sing to her. I sing the way we were. It was her favorite song. But you know the other hospice patients were like, dear God, take me now. Because... <laughs> I got to be there for my sister for 15 years every other Sunday because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And let me finish up with this. To add frosting on, which is a beautiful cake of a life that I get to live today because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Five weeks ago, I sent in 23andMe, my DNA sample, right? It's now been two, three weeks. I found out I have 70 cousins I didn't know I had. Found out I'm 5% African-American. <laughs> Only wish my dad from the KKK could have been around to hear that. <laughs> Most importantly, I find my birth dad. And at 55 years old, I had no pictures of him. Never had a picture of him. And I found out I was a year and 10 months old. He and my mom went to Vegas. They were drinking. They were fighting. She jumped out of the car at state line, and he slammed his sports car into a Peterbilt. And that killed him. And my mom never wanted me to be without a man, and she didn't know how far I'd take that one, right? Um, <laughs> however, when my dad told me his name is Dennis, I got the wrong last name, I didn't know where to look, I couldn't find him. I had spelled the last name wrong. I also found 
I have a half-brother. I have a half-sister, both of whom are friends of Bill W. I have a nephew who's gay, who just got out of rehab. My half-brother calls me and he goes, oh, dude, we got the alcohol and the gay all the way through this family. <laughs> and he says, I want you to know something. After our first talk, it was like an hour. It still kind of gets me. <laughs> and I hang up and he calls me right back. And he says, I wanted an older brother my entire life. Can I tell you I love you yet? I get to be present for that because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I get to be present for the fact that my sister, she calls me and says, my mom wants to talk to you. And I'm like, she's still alive? <laughs> their mother who worked with my mother and their father, who was also my birth father. And I call this woman. And if I could ever be as graceful as this woman, I will have reached a new plateau, but I don't think I will. I call her. She says, I'm 84 years old. I was friends with your mother, and she was wonderful, except for what she did to my marriage. She said, but I don't blame the children for the sins of the adults. She said, I have a lot of extra room in my heart. If you ever need another mom, she said, I'm right here. I got to meet her two weeks ago. This woman stood on the sidewalk and clapped and cried as I got out of my car. I have this entirely new family. They completely are open to having me as a brother. None of this would be happening if I hadn't followed through with what my Alcoholics Anonymous tribe had taught me. Get a sponsor, work the steps, be of service. Be of service, be of service. This is the beautiful, beautiful part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my story's still going. It's only going to get better. If you're new and you're in this room, if you need someone to call, you call me. You come up to me, I'll be here for the next three days. Honestly, you may have my phone number. Find me on Facebook. If I can do anything to lend you my hope, the same way that Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me, I will do that. More importantly, not just lending you your, my hope, but you might lend me yours when I need it the most. And let's all remember what HOPE stands for. H-O-P-E. Happy our program exists. Thank you for letting me speak tonight.